We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And as you're turning there, let me say, this may be one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. All right? So no pressure for me today, right? Most commentators agree that this is a very uh, Barbie passage to try to untangle. But the Lord is with us, and I am confident that He will help us today. And in the midst of all this, we'll actually only have two points. <clears throat> They'll be lifted right off the surface of the text and just follow the way that Paul says what he says. Uh, the first one, I'm simply going to call the command. The command. And it comes from verse 8. And here's what he says. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, let's break it down. When he says, see that no one takes you captive, that language was commonly used for plundering the cargo of a ship. And so he's saying, listen, you have true riches, true treasure in Christ. He laid that out last week. And he says, don't let anyone come along and steal that from you. Don't let them put you under the slavery of these false ideas. And then the way that he constructs, and you can even see this in the English there, by philosophy and empty deceit, so that would be their modus operandi for putting the Colossian Christians under captivity. And when he talks about philosophy here, he's not talking about what you studied in college or high school. He's not talking about Aristotle or Plato or anyone like that. In the Greek, actually, this has the article that goes with it, and so it could be translated by the philosophy. And what he's getting at there is that at this time in history, anyone that used these kinds of ideas could have their corpus of material called a philosophy. You see this actually, Josephus, he talks about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's called a philosophy, even a magician could be called a philosopher. But Paul goes a step further here, and he says the philosophy and empty deceit. So there's a ring of hollowness here. There's a problem with what they're saying. And then he lays out that problem in specific detail. And again, this is one of those opportunities where we can look at Colossians, and we can see the inspiration of the Spirit of God in Paul's pen. Every one of these phrases is right on the money for what they were dealing with. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So when he talks about human tradition there, he's talking about what they were trying to pass this off as. That this has been around for a long time. We've just discovered it recently through this melding of, uh, of ancient Judaism and spirituality and the secret passwords and so on and so forth. And he's saying... No, that is not coming from human tradition, at least not in a helpful way. And in fact, it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, what does he mean by that? He's talking about the demonic origin of this teaching. Elemental spirits of the world would have clearly been talking about the spirits that the, the, many of the, the Greeks at that time believed controlled the planets and the universe and so on. And he's saying, no, this teaching that they are offering to you is truth, it is false, and it is demonic. And the biggest problem with it here is what he says here in the last phrase, it's not according to Christ. So when we think about how we should apply 
what they are being warned about here, it's actually pretty similar. Now, the heresies are different today. I think if someone came up to us with this kind of thing that they would have been sitting under the false teaching of at times through their friends and what's out in the community and so on, I think we would look at this and go, no, 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 Paul's warned us about that. We're good. But the danger to us today comes through other types of false teaching that comes in through the side door of Christianity. And I think the biggest thing that we need to be on guard about today of any kind of false teaching according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ, has some kind of political dimension to it. And this exists both on the, both on the far left and on the far right. And what we need to do with all these things is we try to sort through all of these ideas, whether it's some of the more classical heresies, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, some of this stuff that's out there today, we need to put them all through what I would like to call the Jesus test. And what I mean by that is simply what does this corpus of ideas, this ideologies, this philosophy, as Paul calls it, what does it say about Jesus? Is he enough? Is he enough to save us and get us to heaven? Is he enough to get us through this life which is filled with both joy and intense heartbreak? Is he enough to help us with all the minutia of life, the parenting, the, the, the relational difficulties, the spending, all of the things that we face in life? Is this system presenting to me Jesus as enough? And if it isn't, it's a problem. And one thing that I think we also need to pay attention to here as well is go back to that phrase, elemental spirits of the world. Now, I don't know how much time you spent studying the false religions of the world, but I've, I've spent a good amount of time. And one thing that comes up time and time again, usually it's at the origin of whatever the cult is, is some kind of demonic intervention. Now, I don't say this in any way to be hateful. I don't say it to, to, to poke a stick unnecessarily. But the, there's one in particular. If you study the roots of Mormonism, for example, where Joseph Smith has an encounter with what he calls an angel named Moroni, that's his name, and he reveals to him the golden tablets, and when, then the rest of the, the religion is built upon that, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to see demonic intervention at the mouth of that river of false teaching. And then when you fast forward and you look at what they teach about Jesus, it does not pass the Jesus test because you have to have their version of Jesus to be saved. So in many ways, the threads of Gnosticism that Paul would have been warning these early Christians against, they're still out there today. They just come in different clothes. And so again, the command of Paul to these early Christians is the command of Paul to us today. It is, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Dustin, how do we do that? Well, the good news is, you already know how to do this. You do what you've been doing. Put yourself in a church, 
under-teaching, that believes the Bible, that takes the historic Christian message seriously, and that nudges you toward other Christians that are doing the same thing. Because what's going to happen there is the Holy Spirit is going to use the Word of God in your life, and He's going to use the Word of God in their lives. And if for some reason you begin to veer off the track, the people, at least in this church, love you enough to say, hey, what's going on? What's happening here? Come back, come back. Don't be under the captivity of that nonsense. Let's believe the truth and let's believe it together. And the Spirit of God will work through the Word of God, (coughs) the people of God, and all the other means of grace in our lives to keep us on the path and lead us in the direction toward heaven. So that's the command. That's somewhat of what we need to do to put ourselves in line to obey this command. But the most important thing that's going to help us the most is where Paul goes in verse 9, and that is our second point, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Because what Paul begins to do is he begins to tell them and us the truth about Jesus and us. Look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the chief problem with this Gnostic heresy was this faulty Christ. It was this diminished view of Jesus. And the way I've talked about this system many times in shorthand up to this point has to do with passwords and so on, and that's all true. But one of the chief aspects of it was that they believed, the Gnostics, that God's fullness, if you want to call it that, came through a series of emanations and angelic mediators. You may remember that all the way back to verse 1, that matter is evil and God is holy and God can't be involved with matter. So he basically just kept spitting out smaller and diminished versions of himself that came down through history that were now, that's how they were going to interact with the Creator God. But of course, that doesn't line up with the Bible. And so when Paul says, in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that is a spear through the heart of that false, diminished Christ. But then Paul doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, Jesus is God. He also says, and then you have been filled in him. Now, of course, he's not saying to us that now we are God. That title is reserved for for Jesus. But this notion here of our unity in Christ, or our union in Christ, leading to us having a sense of being filled in him really is remarkable. I found one illustration that I thought was particularly helpful this week. If we went to the ocean and you had a mason jar and you took that mason jar and you scooped up some of the ocean water, would you have all of the ocean in your jar? Of course not. But would your jar be filled with the ocean? Yes, it would. And that's what Paul is saying here. 
Jesus is God in his fullness. He is the real thing. He is the divine article. He is the authentic God for us. And in that, in our union in him, he now dwells inside of us. Now let's think about the practicality of that today. That means that whatever we need in a given moment, Jesus has that for us. I found this poem that I think captures this so well. It says this, He is a path if any be misled. He is a robe if any naked be. If any chance to hunger, he is bread. If any be a bondman, he is free. If any be but weak, how strong is he? To dead men, life is he. To sick men, health. To blind men, sight. And to the needy, wealth. Alexander McLaren goes a step further and he says this. He says, though all the earth were covered with helpers and lovers of my soul, all could not do for me what I need. We want more than creature help. We need the whole fullness of the Godhead to draw from. And it's all there for us in Christ, each of us. Whosoever will, let him draw freely. Why would we leave the fountain of living waters to hew out for ourselves with infinite pains, broken cisterns that can hold no water? All we need is Christ. Let us lift up our eyes from the low earth and all creatures and behold no man anymore as Lord and helper, save Jesus only, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that a great reminder this morning? Isn't that a great comfort this morning? Isn't that also somewhat of a great challenge to us this morning? That what we need is in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, verses 11 and 12. Paul goes on to describe how this fullness, and by implication, our fullness was accomplished for us in Christ. And the way he does this is interesting. Because he begins and then follows through by talking about the crucifixion events. The death the burial, and the resurrection. Let's take a look at it. Verse 11. And this is where the hill gets steep interpretively, okay? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, let's take it a phrase at a time. What he's talking about here with circumcision, I, I think all of us understand what that is, the removing of a little bit of skin in a very strategic place, we'll call it. And, of course, that had great spiritual significance in the Old Testament to, to show someone as part of God's people. But Paul is using that here in a different way because he's talking about Jesus' physical body being circumcised through his crucifixion. And then he's connecting 
Jesus' crucifixion with our, quote-unquote, death in him. Now, this is not inconsistent with what we see anywhere else in Scripture. Paul talks about this, that, that we died, we uh, cruci- were crucified with Christ. That's over in Galatians 2.20, so on and so forth. But we typically don't think of it in this way. But what he's saying here is, you didn't physically die, you spiritually died. You were circumcised in this way that he's using this word, with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, death of Jesus on the cross, circumcision of his body, you, through your faith in Jesus, it's as if that happened to you, and that is what has taken place. Then in verse 12, having having been buried with him in baptism... So the same kind of identification idea that he's saying, it's the second metaphor that he uses here. He's saying that the the rite of baptism represents an identification with Christ in his death. But then also this final piece, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So he's also saying you've been identified here in the resurrection as well. But let's catch one piece from Peter O'Brien here about this notion of the burial. It says, as in the burial of Christ, as it set the seal upon his death, so the Colossians' burial with him in baptism shows that they were truly involved in his death and laid in his his grave. It is not though that they simply died like Jesus or were buried and laid in the tomb. The burial proves that a real death has occurred and the old life is now a thing of the past. Now, here's where the implications become very significant. This is where Galatians 2.20 begins to really come home to roost. That if we have died with Christ, we are no longer a slave to sin. That's what Paul is talking about over in Romans chapter 6, verses, verses 6 and 7 that the old self was crucified, and now we can live in Christ. And I think the, the, the application in daily shoe leather of what that means to us, it, it really couldn't be more significant. So if you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus, this is not yet true of you. But it could be. It could be today. And if you hear this and the Holy Spirit is quickening within you that I need to get in on what he is talking about in just a bit when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Christ and we'll talk about this further. Because this is what we want. We don't want to be a slave to the old life. We want to walk in the newness of life. Now, for those of us here who already know Jesus, let's flesh this out. This means that whatever you struggle with, that's what it is. It's something you struggle with, but it is no longer your master. You are no longer a slave to it. And the freedom that is available to us in Christ comes from exactly what this passage is talking about. That Jesus has set us free from sin and death through his taking our sin upon himself and his death. So don't let the enemy, the culture, 
your own flesh lie to you and say whatever it is that you're stuck in today, it's just going to be that way forever. Are you going to be perfected in this life? Of course not. But can you make progress in this life? Absolutely. And so this needs to give us immense hope. This needs to give us immense gratitude within our hearts for what Jesus has done from us or done for us. And it also reminds me of an old hymn. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There's a lyric in that song that says this, Would you be free from, you, from your burden of sin? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And I think that the writer probably intends that to be. He's talking about being free from your burden of sin in a salvation sense. But goodness, is that not also true for how we grow in Christ? Would we be free from our burden of sin? Friends, the answer is the blood of the Lamb. So whatever it is that has beaten you up this week that you carried in here, the answer for you is Christ. If you are in Christ today, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You've been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. That good news is not just out there somewhere. It's for you. Now let me put one more pin on this as well. and Let's talk about the resurrection. And I want to draw from a man named Philip Brooks here. He says this, The great Easter truth is not that we are to live newly after death. That is not the great thing. But that we are to be new here. Not so much that we are to live forever as that we are to do, but also that we may live nobly now. And friends, that's really important. That whole thing that I was talking about a minute ago about being dead to sin and not being a slave to that anymore, yes and amen, it's 100% true. But do you know how you're going to live out the reality of that new life? It's in the resurrection power that accompanies it. The same power that gets you free allows you to live free. And I know that in my own journey, some of the things that I have struggled with over the years that, that seem to kind of come back, part of the problem is when I'm not tapping in to that resurrection power of Jesus that is available to me. Because there are some sins that it seems like you probably could kind of lick them in your own strength. But not all of them. And there are some patterns and there are some difficulties that are so ensnaring and so pervasive. And the wounds and the hurt and the, the, the patterns go so deep. We must lean on the resurrection of power of Jesus. And why wouldn't we? If you have a Ferrari in your spiritual garage, then why are you driving around in a spiritual Yugo? We need to get the Ferrari out. We need to go to the Lord and we need to preach the good news of the gospel to ourselves and to our sin that we have not only died with Christ, but we have been raised with Christ. 
and that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within us to give life to our mortal bodies. That Jesus isn't just what we need in the moment. Jesus' resurrection power will help us in the moment. So this week, when you're really up against it at work, when you're really about to lose it with your kids, when you're driving on the interstate and it needs no further explanation, when you need immediate help, friends, go to the power of the Lord that is available to you through the resurrected Christ. Now, as if that weren't enough, Paul wants to put one more log on the gospel fire here. And it comes to us through verses 13 through 15. Look at it. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgive us, forgiven us all our trespasses. So in some ways, he's restating what he just said to make sure they don't miss it. You were dead in your trespasses, sins, if you want to think of it that way. And in this old dead body of what you were about in your body, God has resurrected you with Christ and in the process forgiven all of your sins. So a little piece of gospel practicality there. There are certain sins that seem to come back up time and time again. Things that the enemy absolutely loves to use against us. And when he does... You need to remind him and you need to remind yourself that Jesus has forgiven you all of your sins. Not just some. Not just 97%, but not this last really wicked 3%. All of your sins. And how did he do that? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, the record of debt that stood against us, in some ways it was a spiritual IOU that because we were born sinners and then we've sinned a bunch on top of that, we incurred a debt that we owed God because of His perfect righteousness. But here's the thing. We could never pay it. We could never pay it on our own. And Satan came and comes and accuses us, holding up that IOU in our face. And what Paul is saying here is, Jesus has canceled that. Now, there's another image that would have been very close to them because people, when they were crucified at this time, they would have had a placard or a scroll or something that would have been placed above the, the person being crucified's head that would have said, this is what this person did. This is the debt that they are paying by their death. And he's saying that Jesus took that debt that we owed and he paid it. He canceled it paid it in full, and fulfilled all its legal demands. And even this language here, think about how profoundly cross-centered this was. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen, that is important to us. 
Because again, what is that? That is a stake in the heart of Satan's accusation against us as believers. There's a great story from the life of Martin Luther. He had a dream in which he was visited at night by Satan, who brought to him a record of his own life written in his own hand. And the tempter said to him, Is that true? Did you write this? And the poor, terrified Luther confessed that it was true. It was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again and again. And at length, the evil one prepared to take his leave after bringing Luther down to the absolute lowest depths of misery. But suddenly Luther turned and he looked at him, and he said, It's true, every word of it, but right across it all, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Can we feel the weight of that today? That Jesus has forgiven us all our trespasses? That He has set aside this spiritual debt that we owed and nailed it to the cross? So the next time, not conviction, but guilt comes against you, may we remind ourselves and our accuser that Jesus has forgiven all our sins. That He has set aside all of their legal demands because He paid for them in full. There's one last little thing here. Verse 15, this one might not mean as much to us as it would have to them, but we still need to talk about it. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, when he's talking about rulers and authorities here, I don't think he's talking about magistrates and the king and so on. He's talking about spiritual rulers and authorities. These would have been demonic elements, which would make sense with what he says up here at the beginning of the passage when he says the genesis of this Gnosticism is demonic. So he's saying not only don't be taken captive by it because it's demonic, the demons that have come up with this nonsense and are using it to distract people from the real Christ, they have been publicly embarrassed by Jesus because of what he did through his life, death, and resurrection. And so that's why when we today interact, whether we realize it or not, at times we absolutely interact with demonic elements, we need to be aware, but we never need to be afraid. We need to be aware, but we never need to be afraid because since we are now united to Christ, we have authority over these demonic elements. Now, does that mean practically that we go out looking for people that we can exercise demons from? No, I, I wouldn't go down that road. But that does mean if you get into a situation and you find yourself in a place where it's like, it seems like there's something else going on here. This is not just a human disagreement, or this is not just a cloudy thought in my head. There's some kind of spiritual opposition that's happening. We have the authority as believers, because of passages like this, 
to send those demons to flight. Because Jesus has disarmed them. And not just disarmed them, put them to open shame. And the language that he's using here, they would have immediately understood this. When, when, a, when a ruler was conquered, when a nation was overrun, after they had killed all the soldiers and the people had surrendered, they would parade the king dressed in all black or naked and all of his subjects and all of their art and jewelry and gold and so on through the streets of the victorious city. And the people that were the victors would basically jeer at them. Now, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying this is what happened. And that's the language in the word picture of the kind of decisive victory that Jesus has won over the demonic realm. That's what Paul is calling to mind. So again, when we think about this, we see the true power that is available to us as Christians. Again, it's not to go looking for a fight, and you would be unwise if you did. But when the fight finds you, and it will, you have the spiritual resources that you need to wage appropriate spiritual battle because the ultimate spiritual battle has already been won for you in Christ. And think about what that would have meant to these people. The ones that were under the spell of this demonic false teaching. Think about that, what that would have meant to these people, many of which who would have really been concerned that demons were in charge of the world. And Paul comes along and he says, in no uncertain language, my little children, don't you worry. Jesus is enough. Jesus is in charge. Jesus has publicly embarrassed the rulers and authorities of this world. Friends, that's a Jesus. They could get behind, and we can get behind. And speaking of Jesus, think about all the wonderful things that we learned about him today. That in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that we've been filled in him, who is the head and rule of all authority. Let's think about the fact that because of his Death on the cross, we have been made friends with God and have access to the resources of God, having put off the body of flesh, being buried with Him in baptism, now raised with Him through faith. And then all of these wonderful gospel truths of full forgiveness, of having the debt completely canceled, and now having this kind of power available to us through Christ. So let's hear the command, and let's walk in courage. Let's hear the command to not be taken in by anything that doesn't pass the Jesus test, and let's walk in courage in the power that Jesus provides. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for how you inspired Paul, how you helped him, how you gave him exactly what those Colossians needed to hear. And Lord, how 
even though our situation is so different today, it's for us as well. Lord, that is something that only you can do. And Lord, if you can do that, how could you not help us with the daily struggles of our lives? How could you not give us what we need to not just survive, but to thrive? Lord, you are entirely trustworthy, and we are thankful to be a part of your family. Continue to minister to us now through the rest of our gathering. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.